Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. Coming up, Adafruit's Becky Stern talks about wearable technology and computery crafty mischief. And then we remember that time that Abigail Adams wrote to John Adams and told him to remember the ladies. Spoiler alert, he did not. That and your nerd confessions on Nerdette. Because everybody's a little nerdy about something. Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And you're listening to Nerdette. Becky Stern is the director of wearables at Adafruit. Adafruit is this fantastic site where you can buy all sorts of bits and pieces of making your own computers. And it also means that those tiny computers can be woven into your clothes or turned into toys. And that's where Becky Stern comes in. I started putting electronics in textile crafts in college. So really comes from a crafty place, less of a gadget place. Your work that comes more from the tinkerer perspective than the mass commercial appeal perspective seems sometimes like it's as much about fighting the technology that's becoming more and more pervasive and taking control back as it does engaging in the technology itself. Can you give an example of something that you've made that also fights back against technology or surveillance? I mean, I'm not into the stealthware so much. I, I gave a talk at uh, Hackers on Planet Earth last summer about disruptive wearable technology, and that did include a lot of counter-surveillance uh, wearable technology, either in the in the sense of, you know, a textile that hides your heat signature or like a hair clip that calls the police if it thinks you've been attacked. My work focuses primarily on getting people excited about playing with technology and gaining agency over it. Not so much fighting it, but using it as a tool instead of being afraid of it. Because if you don't program, you might be programmed. That's, you know, program or be programmed is what I say. Um, (laughs) So like I did one stealth project that was uh, just a conductive fabric pocket that you can sew into your jacket and put your phone in it to, you know, prevent it from having any service. So sometimes phones have been known to broadcast even when they're off. And if you want to hide your location or you're worried about surveillance from the government, that's a project you could build. But I primarily focus on on, uh, getting people excited to to play with technology, not using technology from a from a fearful place. Yeah, it seems like you really like to orient yourself around that idea of creative misuse and mischief. Yeah, sure. So like one of Adafruit's premier products was the TV Be Gone, and it's a little infrared remote that turns all the televisions off. It has all of the power codes for all of the different television brands programmed into it. And when I was in grad school in Arizona, I, uh, it seemed like every restaurant had a gazillion TVs in it and nobody was watching them. So I would bring the device with me, but like the hostesses and stuff would notice and uh, they'd get suspicious of what are you pointing at the TV and why is it now off? And then they'd go turn it back on. And so I built it into a jacket and I used conductive thread along the zipper to make a switch that could stealthily, stealthily be activated by unzipping the jacket because it's infrared light that humans can't see. So... In that way, um, I was sort of 
I don't think I was subverting technology. I was using technology to subvert, you know, a public place to be more like what I wanted it to be. Because I, sw- I swear, I wouldn't do it at a sports bar. Only it's, it's, even the fancy, nice restaurants in Phoenix had TVs. See, this is funny because I picture this and I'm like, oh, I'm going to the sports bar with this. Thing. <laughs> like, let's just do it all the way. So how difficult is it to make something like TV Be Gone? Oh, it's very easy. I mean, with all of the tutorials online, kids are spoiled these days, right? You can learn how to do anything on YouTube. How do you think I learned how to do my makeup? <laughs> I think that um, with a soldering iron and a little bit of sewing, you can get really far. And I try to do projects. I mean, I'm, I'll make projects that run the spectrum of very beginner friendly to very advanced. And it, it gives me great pleasure to do projects that are easily achievable with a, a low cost bill of materials and and only a crafting skill like sewing. So you don't need access to even a $50 soldering iron, you can do things really easily and cheaply. Are soldering irons really only $50? We got to get one. You can get a soldering iron for $10. Yeah, but it's not going to be a great one. I always expected them to be like several, you know, like an investment into the thing. But that's like a hot glue gun, pretty much. Sure. My least favorite tool, but you know, split my hair. In terms of cost, in terms of in cost. terms of cost, in terms of like actual investment, that's all. Yeah, and you can even you can get started with electronics at a very low price point, and then you learn what you like about tools and upgrade your tools as you see fit. I, I always thought a nice quality soldering iron is a good investment off the bat because uh, for beginners who are practicing their skill, having a tool that's not doing you any favors is is really setting yourself at a disadvantage. But then again, I learned electronics in a lab with good facilities. So I learned what it was like to solder with a good soldering iron first. And then, you know, when trying to use a crappy one, it was like, what is this? I thought I was good at soldering. I- soldering. <laughs> so like, I, I, I think there's something to be said for using good tools as a beginner. Becky, I love that you often describe these wearables as adding a superpower to your everyday life. So the idea that you can unzip your jacket and turn off a TV or be wearing a shoe that is collecting static electricity is just plain fun. Yeah, we see a lot of uh, people who are really creative in other fields starting to dip their toe into wearable electronics, and cosplay is a great example of that. So cosplayers are known to put a lot of time and effort into a really creative endeavor of expressing themselves, and electronics just lets them take that one step further. So if you're already dressing up as a character, and maybe that character's from a video game or movie and has superpowers, you can replicate, uh, you know, a glowing suit of armor or all kinds of cool things with sensors, motion-activated clothes that light up or make sounds. And it's pretty exciting that it's not just about, like, learning the technology and learning computer programming, but it's also about then one step further of using it in a creative expression that really excites me. And it's really exciting to see people who didn't know that they would be into electronics uh, have like an alternative draw to it. Yeah, I'm really excited about this stuff. I feel like you're really embracing that idea of being the nerd ambassador for this process, which just makes me really happy. How do you take fashion into consideration when you're making this stuff? Because that ends up being a pretty big priority for you, too, in a weird way, right? Yeah, it's cool. And I I almost went to school for fashion. But culture, it was a little rough for me because I'm definitely a nerd. I needed some objectivity. And fashion is very, very subjective at all times. So the creative expression part of it is there and the self-confidence is there, right? If you can augment your style and you made it yourself. So in that sort of from that punk place of like, I made this culture myself. I made these electronics myself. I am expressing myself. It's not I'm not just paying to associate myself with a brand that other people think is cool. I'm actually adding something to the to the pile. So I like to make projects that are easy to modify for someone's own taste. I'll make like a sample that gives you a seed of an idea and then the 3D files and the code and the electronic circuit diagram 
enough information for you to modify it so that like I'll make a skirt that lights up when I dance, but then we'll see like a dad and his daughter turn that into like a a Tinkerbell costume for Halloween, for example. It must be so fun to not just be making all of this stuff and putting it out into the world, but through Adafruit and just social media, being able to see what people are doing with your designs. It's like putting a pattern out into the world and then seeing that Tinkerbell costume must have been so fun. It certainly is very rewarding when I see people's creations based on things that I've made. And the narcissist in me loves that, loves to get the praise. But also it's just inspiring to see people, uh, you know, grab onto an idea and make it their own. So we always like to ask good nerds about their origin stories. What to you is sort of like the beginning of you becoming a crafty tinkerer? Well, crafting started really young for me. My parents are both very handy and crafty and DIYers. They're always into like home renovation. And uh, my mother's an avid quilter and knitter and taught me those things when I was very young. I didn't start playing with electronics until college, really, but I was always interested in technology. I was always a a computer nerd and um, spent a lot of time, uh, you know, in really, really early massively multiplayer online games like Castle Infinity and talking to people on ICQ and uh, because I grew up in a small town. So making friends on the internet was indoctrinated into me pretty early and then with the crafting. So I always felt like pretty competent around technology and installing like Firewire video card in my parents' computer tower when I was in junior high and that kind of thing. I started tinkering with electronics, actual, you know, batteries and LEDs and such in college when I was in a class called Making Wireless Toys. It was taught by this toy designer, Yuri Gitman. And we were given this assignment to make a plush nightlight. And I was reading Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, and was being like really (laughs) appalled by all of the, um, you know, labor chain and sanitation chain of like factory farmed beef. And so I made like these light up steaks. I made these steaks (laughs) and I know that irradiated, (laughs) irradiated meat doesn't actually glow, but um, I was meditating on, on all of that stuff. And so I made these plush steaks and I was like, well, I'll put LEDs in my steaks and then they'll be like, they're irradiated. (laughs) And I guess that was it. I mean, it's been all downhill from there. Oh my God. (laughs) That article, the article for that tutorial So I wrote a tutorial for that project, and it got picked up by Make Magazine, and that was my first time being in their publication. I was always obsessed with their blog and sending my projects to their blog, and their senior web editor at the time, Phil Tyrone, offered me a blogging job, and I was just over the moon, and that's how it happened. It was all about the stakes. (laughs) (laughs) So were they felted, or did you, were they, like, sewn together? They were sewn together in that basic plush technique where you take two pieces that are the same shape and then you take a long rectangular strip that forms the vertical wall. I silk screened like a meat pattern onto some pink uh, (laughs) flannel fabric and then (laughs) cut them out. I like that you did it because you were alarmed by the idea of this strange meat, but that someone could make one and have their child hug it at night because they just love steak so much. Maybe. I mean, sure. Tell us a little more about the culture that Adafruit and you live in when it comes to Make Magazine and the rise in this DIY electronics movement we're seeing. I was just in New York a few months ago and there were little bits ads everywhere in the subway and I'm seeing them on Hulu. Maybe it's just because the advertising is smart so it knows that I'm about to take the leap into becoming a tinkerer full force now that I know how cheap a soldering iron is. Thank you. Mm-hmm. But uh <laughs> What do you think is happening with this movement that you're expecting to see in the next two, three, four years? Oh, it's really hard for me to future cast. It's not my specialty. I can tell you about what project I'm going to make next week, but I can't tell you where we'll be in five years. 
I, I think um, I've, I've lived it for a really long time now. Um, maker movement, like I've been asked this question for the last five years about the next five years. You know, we're seeing this maker movement happen. It's already happened. Like we're in it. It's something new now. Com- there's lots and lots of companies. I feel like it's very mature at this point. There's a lot of VC funding out there for maker companies. There are a dozen 3D printers on the market, more than that, that I, you know, f- aimed at the hobbyist market. Um, I think that it's it's not the culture's not coming up. It's here, and it's our job to like usher it into a new generation. Where I personally like to try to keep the spirit positive and not too jargony. There's a lot of marketing happening now, and that's both cool and not cool. In Chicago, here we have a maker lab in our main public library branch, Harold Washington, and we've been there before. There's lots of stuff you can do. There's 3D printers. There's laser cutters. They have the software from Inventables because Inventables is a Chicago-based company. And I find it interesting that libraries and schools are getting more into this space and wonder if you think that computer programming and this kind of understanding of how technology works is an important form of literacy for everyone to have. I do, certainly, because there's no such thing as like living your life without using computer programs in some way. And if you don't have a fundamental understanding of how the technology you use works, then you're going to be manipulated by it. So, um, you know, and that gets harder and harder as technology gets more complex. Explaining the way, you know, that we're having this phone call right now is so much more complex than it would have been even 15 or 20 years ago. So I think it's really important for youngsters and kids and anybody growing up now to have competency in technology. And whether that means taking a programming language alongside their foreign language or building wearable electronics, anything that can give you agency and critical thought about the the technology around us, because it's only going to get more and more obtuse. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think that idea of really being able to empower yourself around it is super important. I mean, like, look at you, you see it in every older generation, right, that they're somewhat intimidated by new technology. And there's always that uh, idea that like older people are like, oh, I don't know what the kids are into these days. And, and um, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm 29. And I'm like, what's WhatsApp? What is this thing happening? Why? You, you yeah. guys going to follow me on Snapchat? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> uh, I think that it's just uh, it's happening so quickly. And yeah, it never used to be that if you're under 30, you'd be alienated by any technology. But now it's happening at a, at a faster clip, right? Moore's law ever increasing in speed. Becky Stern, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Still to come, homework from a cast member of The Breakfast Club. We're not going to tell you who yet. You have to keep listening. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. A great leader nerd of history and your nerd confessions. This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. On 
On March 31, 1776, a lady named Abigail Adams wrote a letter to her husband, John. John would become the second president of the United States, but in March of 1776, there still was no United States. There was, however, a Continental Congress, and its members were figuring out how to create what would become America. So on March 31st, Abigail wrote her husband with a suggestion. I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. We know a lot about the relationship between John and Abigail because they wrote more than a thousand letters to each other. And most of them are still around for us to read. But this is one of our very favorites. Their story has been told over and over again, and it was made into an HBO miniseries in 2008. We actually have a clip from the show. This is Paul Giamatti playing John, and Laura Linney is Abigail. I understand people like Mr. Dickinson and his friends all too well, John. Send a woman to the Congress. She might knock some sense into This is not a question of men and women, Abigail. It is a matter of politics. 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 Mm. And do women not live politics, John Adams? When I go to the cupboard... And I find no coffee, no sugar, no pins, no meat. Am I not living politics? This war touches people that your Congress treats with the same contempt King George reserves for the people of Boston. I mean women, yes, and slaves too, for that matter. Though I am sure you, you wish I would not mention that subject, as it might upset your southern friends. You're harsh, madam. I am cold. And here's a little more from the Remember the Ladies letter that Abigail wrote John. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the far more tender and endearing one of friend. John Adams just got told. (laughs) But so gently. So gently, so politely, but yet so unlistened to. This letter brings up so many mixed feelings for me. I love how tenaciously graceful Abigail is in this letter. It also completely breaks my heart that she would die long before women got the right to vote in the United States. I also obviously am grateful that women like you and I, Trisha, have the right to vote. However, I still think that there is still a really long ways to go when it comes to convincing people that women live politics just as much as men do. Yeah, I think you're right. You can read the whole letter if you want the Remember the Ladies letter at our website, nerdatpodcast.com, and learn a little more about great lady nerd of history, Abigail Adams, while you're there. Now it's time for homework. First up, we have Becky Stern's assignment for you. You can find over 100 wearable electronics tutorials on our tutorial site, the Adafruit Learning System. It's at learn.adafruit.com. And I would love it if anybody would just go there and and find a project that you might like to build and either build it yourself or with a friend or a child and, um, you know, just make something, anything. Make something. Go do it. I love that. Me too, man. I feel like instead of investing in a hot glue gun, we got to just go with a soldering iron. We're going big. <laughs> Your next piece of homework is from John Kapalos. He's the actor who plays the janitor on The Breakfast Club. You know, this guy. You guys think I'm just some untouchable peasant, sir? Peon? Yeah. Maybe so. 
following a broom around after heads like you for the last eight years, I've learned a couple of things. I look through your letters, look through your lockers. I listen to your conversations. You don't know that, but I do. I am the eyes and ears of this institution, my friends. The Breakfast Club turns 30 years old this spring, and we wanted to ask John, what was the thing about his high school experience that takes him back and makes him remember that angsty time in his life? I probably nerded out more with music as a lot of people did. But I have to say, when I went into grade nine, as we said in Canada, in September of 1969, they released a little album called Abbey Road. And that album, whenever I hear any song off that album, it takes me right back to that first day when we went into cafeteria in high school and I'd never really been in a cafeteria and I had the tray and I had the crummy jello and the bad burger and the slop on the side being in that high school cafeteria and sort of <laughs> seeing all the different tables of people like you know there'd be the girls and then the jock guys and then the nerdy guys and stuff and I remember sort of looking around and seeing this group of guys that I sat down with, and I'm telling you to this day, we still email one another every day. <laughs> it's like four or five guys, and we shared a lot. Well, my homework assignment for the people that are listening out in the world is um, not only buy Abbey Road, but memorize it. <laughs> Trisha, this assignment makes me so happy. I feel like you and I are already well on our way to memorizing this album. Absolutely. And I love the fact that we all have this, the music and the movies that when we watched them when we were 14, 15, 16 years old, stay important to us for the rest of our lives. We went back and watched The Breakfast Club recently. I hadn't seen it in probably 10 years, and you hadn't ever seen the whole thing, right? Yeah, I think I saw part of it like homesick on TBS once, but I was still too, like, I didn't get it. And they took out all the swears and all the things, so it probably didn't yeah. make as much yeah. sense when yeah. you watched it on cable. So we rewatched it recently because all this hubbub about the 30th anniversary got us thinking, what would this movie be like if you made it today? And lucky for us, we have two friends who have a whole podcast dedicated to this very thought when it comes to movies. Rob Grabowski and Josiah Jenkins have a show called Remake where this is exactly what they do. They sit down with a guest, discuss a movie, talk about what holds up, what doesn't, and talk about how they would remake it today. They invited me on, so I picked The Breakfast Club. And turns out, Greta, that Rob is actually in the same boat as you. 20 minutes in, I'm like, I've never seen this. And it's, <laughs> I loved it. It's one of those magical movies where nothing really happens, yet everything happens at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah, great. I, and, that's the, you know, and that's the thing that I was wondering about, though, too, is you know, watching it, I didn't know how it would have aged for me. Because I, I remember watching it in high school and liking it a lot. And then watching it now as an adult, I still really enjoyed it. I was like, this is still like a well-written, well-told story. But I, I do wonder if those types exist anymore. That's the thing, right, is that yeah. I think there's still a little bit of this in high schools. I think it has a lot to do with how big your high school is. Oh, totally. I think yeah. if you still go to a giant 2,000, 3,000-kid high school, kids really do not interact with each other and split off. And the groups might have different kind of names and that. But I think the premise of you could be stuck in detention with people who you've 
never talked to before. Still totally true as long oh, as you go to a pretty big high school. Yeah, awesome. and I went to a public high school of 69 people in my graduating <laughs> class. Uh, Josiah's a Quaker. Yeah, that's so, what I keep pitching. So right in North Dakota, that, actually, that's a funny thing is we did not have cliques at all, really, because there wasn't a critical mass of people to have them. So, like, the closest thing to a clique, I guess, would be, like, kids who did shop versus kids who took... <laughs> Not even AP classes because we didn't have them. Who took honors classes? Like, I think that's like the only way we were divided at all is which classes we selected. And so for me watching The Breakfast Club, I think I assumed that's what big high schools were like, though. Sure. Like, that's my, uh, like, cultural consciousness. Of my, my graduating class was about 500 people. Like, I went to a big high school. I remember the day of graduation, and I, I just, we were all situated by last names, and I was just lucky enough to sit by my friend Mike Grimes. And I, there was people being called up, and I go, Grimes, do you know that guy? And he's like, no. I'm like, I've never seen that guy, ever. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. Because we definitely had clicks in my high school, for sure. I think, too, my personal high school experience, and this is something that I was curious about with you guys, is which you would identify with if you had to, right? Yeah. The premise being you have to go ahead, pick one. Clearly, I would have fallen sort of into the brain group as a nerd. Yeah. But I think because I still did play sports, and I did theater stuff, and I did journalism, so I was kind of always the weird kid with the notepad on the side documenting high school, not really living it. I'm kind of the sixth, like, I'm the filmmaker in this movie, not any of the five, because John, I was totally the one who would have been doing that. I'm John Hughes. Yeah. Uh, I would have been the janitor. <laughs> the cool janitor. I would have been Vern, Vernon. Vernon. Uh, no, I think I, but similarly, I feel like I would be the brain, but I went to such a small high school that they couldn't cut me from the sports teams. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I did theater things too, but I think the brain resonates most to my experience, except that I never got an F. <laughs> In my family, B's were issues. That's like a phrase that we still banter about because I once got, well, no, I got a lot of B's and my dad would be really upset when there were B's. Bees are issues, Greta. Bees are issues. Oh boy. Bees are issues. So you, like Anthony Michael Hall, understand pressure. I do, but I also, yeah, I, I shrugged it off. I shook it off. <laughs> well, we only give gold stars to the nerds who leave confessions on our voicemail. You'll hear one of those coming up, and we have a very special announcement. We've got one other homework assignment for you, and it's a little time intensive, so I hope that you have your calendar clear. We need you to watch Game of Thrones. This is not the first time we have told you to watch Game of Thrones, but the stakes just got a lot higher. Super fans of Nerdette will remember a while ago we interviewed Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He came on and essentially questioned the premise of our show, saying that nerdery isn't cool, and that when he was a kid, nerds had to suffer for being into fantasy or sci-fi or whatever it was, It made them an outsider, not a part of the cool kids club like we trumpet here on Nerdette. Yeah, I think for Peter, part of coming of age was really giving up a lot of that nerdery until something roped him back in. For me, though, the real sort of bizarre re-entry into this world was Game of Thrones. His friends kept recommending the Game of Thrones books, but he shrugged it off. But then when he found out HBO was making the book into a series, he picked up the first one and the rest is history. Literally... Four minutes later, I'm walking into walls because I won't put the book down to look up. And it's been a really weird reentry into that kind of obsessive fandom for me, which has been both 
fun in that, you know, it's like, oh, I feel like I'm 15 again. Yeah. But it's also been like, oh, my God, when I was 15, I was friendless and had acne. And <laughs> it's been weird to sort of reenter that mindset of being obsessed with a fictional world where these fictional people and their interactions and their history mean a lot to me again, which was not the case for about, oh, 25 to 30 years. So the reason we're bringing this conversation back up is because... Let's bring up the uh, music here for a second. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. Because starting in mid-April, we'll be recapping every episode of Season 5 of Game of Thrones with Peter Sagal. Bring in the trumpets! (laughs) We're calling it Nerdette Spoils Game of Thrones with Peter Sagal. The show airs Sunday nights on HBO, and each Monday, Peter, Greta, and I will be spoiling Game of Thrones for you if you so choose. If you've been waiting for a good excuse to watch the show, here it is, guys. I don't know what else we can do for you. (laughs) And don't worry if you're not completely caught up yet. There's still a little time. The first episode of Game of Thrones isn't until April 12th. So yeah, that's a couple weeks. I have some catching up to do. I'm going to be honest here, but join us. It's going to be fun, guys. That's a lot of homework this week. I guess we could call this final exams. Since this is the last episode for a couple of weeks, we're taking a little mini break between seasons. You can always find us, though, at nerdatpodcast.com. Now it's time to hear from you. Time for Nerd Confessions. Hi, my name is Mariah, and this is my Nerd Confession. I'm originally from Juneau, Alaska, currently living in Athens, Greece, and in the fall when my current husband and I decided to get married and have a hand fasting on the beach on the island of Izra, uh, close to Athens, I decided to have a pair of custom chucks made to go with my purple dress. I had a purple silk dress, Grecian style, and I wear a lot of Converse. No product placement endorsement here, but I wear them a lot. So I, had, I went to their website, had a pair custom made, and on the back, there's a space for eight characters. And I thought about what should I put? You know, should I put a name? Should I put a date? Should I put the place that we were having our wedding? And finally, I decided after thinking about this for about a week, I put three point. One four one five nine two six, which is in fact pi to seven decimal places, because pi has a beginning and no end. It's infinity. Love the podcast. Thanks. A beautiful symbol of like a life relationship too, right? I love this for <laughs> myriad reasons. I shall now list them. One, I am obsessed with Greece. It's one of the places that's on the top of my to travel to list. So I think it's amazing that you had your wedding there. Two. <laughs> My relationship with my Chucks, my relationship with my Chucks is deep. My mother tried to throw my teenager Chucks away on many occasions because they were so ratty. But no, they are important. They must remain. (laughs) It doesn't matter if they're barely shoes anymore. They must be kept forever. If I had written an infinite number on the back of them, maybe they would be even more infinite. But Chucks are forever. Again, this is not a product placement. (laughs) I just love these shoes very much. They are very important to me. You know what's really funny about that, too, is that when I was in fifth grade... My feet were as big as my mom's feet. Mm-hmm. And so I would wear her purple chucks. <gasps> purple chucks? Yes. They existed. I only ever had the regular black and white ones, but they were the high toppy ones, and I wore oh, them yeah. constantly. <laughs> I did at some point realize by high school that they were the official shoe of the nonconformist, which is an oxymoron. And that, <laughs> right, right. But they're still just the best shoes. Yep. 
So oh thank gosh. you for that beautiful nerd confession. I hope that your relationship is as infinite as your shoes. <laughs> yes, thank you very much, Mariah. That was perfect. Gold, yes, gold star to Mariah. The rest of you can earn a gold star by calling and leaving your nerd confession. Tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome. 312-600-5638. Or you can suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile. Or just say hi. We love voicemails. Again, that's 312-600-5638. Nerdette is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dussault, Colleen Pellissier, and Brad Helm. Thanks to Becky Stern and John Kapalos for joining us this week. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening. We're going to be on hiatus over the next couple weeks, catching up on Game of Thrones and getting ready for a magical live event in April. Yes, we're doing a live show at the Cards Against Humanity headquarters here in Chicago. The guys who created that game now have this amazing, fun co-working Beautiful. space. There's a whole room full of Legos, There's you guys. Room. There's a Lego room. <laughs> but we're going to be using their theater space to have a live show. You can come and leave your nerd confession live, hear interviews with great nerdy storytellers. There'll probably be a pop quiz or two because, you know, nerds. And a hangout afterwards. The event is Tuesday, April 21st. If you want to be the first to know when tickets are available, you should probably be following us on Twitter and make sure you're signed up for our e-newsletter. You can sign up for that email newsletter at nerdatpodcast.com. That's also where you can find your homework. And make sure that you're following us on Instagram at nerdatpodcast for teeny tiny book reviews. Teen time! Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Throw some stars and write a review on iTunes or Stitcher if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent A Woman did on Stitcher. A Woman. Yep. Perfect. All women. Tell your friends about us. Spread the nerdy love. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or you work from one and you want to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, underwrite the show. Email nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.